Would you turn with me in your Bibles to the Gospel of Mark, Mark chapter 10. We will read just a few verses, Mark chapter 10, verses 13 through 16. We will also be reading from Lord's Day 27 in the Heidelberg Catechism. That's found on page 229 of your Forms and Prayers book, page 229. What we'll read from Mark after we pray and ask for God's blessing on it is a a stunning text one we're very familiar with, but stunning in how compassionate and gracious the Lord is and how Jesus responds to the lowliest of the kingdom in welcoming the children to himself, and that's in connection with what we think of on baptism this evening. Before we read, let's pray. Lord God, we come before you and ask that what we would see here is not just simply the the ins and outs and the principles of baptism, we hope we would see that, but especially that we would see you through it and that we would see what you have done for your people, even to those who are the the lowliest of us, the most helpless of us, who you call to yourself, who you include as part of your people to to even bless them. They are a, a depiction of us all who are unworthy to receive your covenant faithfulness and kindness and your blessing. And we see that in baptism as well. May that truth not grow dim in us, but rather be something that we use to worship you and to thank you for. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Mark 10, verses 13 through 16. And they were bringing children to him that he might touch them, and the disciples rebuked them. But when Jesus saw it, he was indignant And said to them, Let the children come to me, do not hinder them, for to such belongs the kingdom of God. Truly I say to you, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God like a child shall not enter it. And he took them in his arms and blessed them, laying his hands on them. Thus far the reading from the Gospel of Mark. Very seldom do you read texts where Jesus is indignant. You never want Jesus to be indignant with you, and you see that his frustration, his that indignant, was brought about by trying to keep these children from him. What a heart that he has for his people, the littlest of his people. And we turn then our attention to Lord's Day 27 as an interpretation of what the Bible teaches, the, how we are to understand what the Bible says about baptism. And we will, we will go through each question and answer in the message. We are going to focus more on the third question and answer here that deals with infant baptism. Does this outward washing with water itself wash away sins? No, only Jesus Christ's blood and the Holy Spirit cleanse us from all sins. Why then does the Holy Spirit call baptism the water of rebirth and the washing away of sins? God has good reason for these words. To begin with, he wants wants to teach us that the blood and Spirit of Christ take away our sins just as water removes dirt from the body. But more importantly, He wants to assure us by this divine pledge and sign that we are as truly washed of our sins spiritually as our bodies are washed with water physically. Should infants also be baptized? 
Yes, infants as well as adults are included in God's covenant people, and they, no less than adults, are promised deliverance from sin through Christ's blood and the Holy Spirit who works faith. Therefore, by baptism, the sign of the covenant, they too should be incorporated into the Christian church and distinguished from the children of unbelievers. This was done in the Old Testament by circumcision, which was replaced in the New Testament by baptism. Debates over the sacraments were some of the most common and some of the most difficult to work through in the Reformation. How much of that time was spent even arguing against those that they largely agreed with but differed on the sacraments. And I'm here to say those debates have not gone away. I remember when I was uh, at Bible College, Reformation Bible College in Florida, that's through um, Ligonier Ministries, Ligonier, through its reach, would bring in a lot of, shall we say, Reformed Baptists. That's sort of a contradiction, but we know what we mean by that, who are Reformed in most things, but still would hold to a believer's baptism only. And there would always be debates between those who believed in infant baptism and those who didn't. That was one of them. One of there, there were several. You're, you're dealing with a unique breed at Bible College who like to argue about certain things. So there, there was much to discuss and argue about, but that would always be one of them. Everyone would have their, their arguments to, to say, oh no, baptism shouldn't be given to infants, it's through faith, it's that sign of faith. Or others would say, no, you just don't understand the covenant. I liked that, that was the easiest to say, probably not the most kind, but you just don't understand the covenant, you just don't get it. These are the debates that rage, but is it important? Is it worthwhile to have these arguments? Does it really make a, a difference today? Sort of what I'm asking is how practical is such a message this evening to, to talk about baptism in general, but even to, to seek to understand baptism toward infants? Does it matter? Well, I have seen the confusion range on both sides. I've participated in many discussions and arguments over it. I've witnessed it. And I can tell you that it's of significant importance Not that we would say those who don't believe it couldn't be saved, certainly, we're not going there, but it does instruct you on your understanding of the covenant, how how you see baptism, and who should receive it. It also shows us a deeper understanding, a deeper love and, and knowledge towards God when we see what he's doing in it, as opposed to merely a mark of a profession of faith, or merely accompanying just a profession of faith. There's more beauty and richness. We began talking about that last week, and we see that continue here today. What the Catechism is responding to was its own day and age misunderstanding of it, and those just continue into the present. Dealing with the errors of those who would place too much behind the sacrament and what it accomplished, or those who would place too little there, And the Catechism is trying to steer us in that right direction. And I would would call us all to seek to understand this. This is not just an insignificant debate. We should all be those to be able to explain and to explain well why we would baptize our children. Why we would bring them. Why we desire that even. Because it matters. That's what we'll see. We'll follow the, the structure of the Catechism. First question and answer 72, and the first point is baptism's washing is not automatic. Baptism's washing is not automatic. What do I mean by this? We mean that the water itself does not wash away spiritual sins, and that might seem pretty obvious to us. 
right? I mean, why, why would a physical substance like water have anything to do with a spiritual issue or spiritual uncleanness like sin? See, it, it, in truth, it doesn't. In truth, that water and physical water, water can't just wash away that sins, but the Catechism is dealing with that misunderstanding in their day and age of the Roman Catholic Church. The Roman Catholic Church that put so much behind the, the working of the sacrament as, it, as if the water itself will just wash away your sins no matter what the state of your faith is, no matter if you do accept it or not by the water simply falling over your head, by you not rejecting it, that you have received the cleansing, you will be saved through it, that baptism is even necessary for it. Now, before we would respond and say, that's just silly, that's just ridiculous, we should be aware that they, that, that church, the Roman Catholic Church came to that conclusion off of misreadings, but, but scripture texts that really highlight and, and put forward what's happening in baptism. We shouldn't just think, oh, that baptism isn't spoken of that strongly in God's word. There is a reason for that misunderstanding. Baptism and its cleansing power is spoken very highly of in God's word. And so it's not just so simple as, yes, water wouldn't wash it away, though the catechism's answer is indeed simple. It directs us to the answer. We shouldn't disparage what baptism means by just saying, that's not what happens in it. Catechism's answer is brief. Does this outward washing with water itself wash away sins? No, only Jesus Christ's blood and the Holy Spirit cleanse us from all sins. This is the scripture's truth. We know that. We've gone through it. Romans 3, 21 to 31 clearly explain that salvation is through faith in Jesus Christ and him alone. There is no other way of salvation. And that's one principle you must, must hang on to when you're trying to understand the sacraments themselves or baptism that it's still only by faith in Christ. Sacraments we've talked about as well are a means of grace, just as preaching is. And we would make a connection to them. Right now, there's the preaching of the word. That's a means of grace, even as baptism is a means of grace. A means of grace can extend to anyone and be a true offer of a means of grace without it being received or without it having any production in their life, for it must be received in faith. If, if there was a crowd walking around outside, if we were to set up camp outside of a concert or a sporting event and begin to preach the word to the people, and if it was an official preaching of the word, it would be the means of grace that was being sent out. This is the true preaching of the church. But would they receive it? Would merely hearing God's word automatically mean that you were nourished on Christ or that your faith was produced through it? Well, certainly not. It would take the Holy Spirit and his working in you and your response in faith for the word to have any effect. And that's the same as in baptism itself. What does baptism take to be effective? Well, it's not just the performance of the means of grace. Just like it's not just the performance of preaching, it's not just the water running over the head. It takes the Holy Spirit's work and faith. The Spirit's working faith in us to receive that grace, that blessing, and that nourishment. And so we could dump out loads of baptismal water on those exiting such an event. Of course, not what we would promote by any means, but that doesn't mean that all those who have received it 
or who didn't put a barrier in place have been regenerated or washed truly in Christ's blood. And we have to get that clear. And I make this warning, and I say it because in our day and age, many of our churches are, are sort of walking away from true tenets of the faith and even, and even forgetting why we, why we reformed from the Catholic Church in the first place, sort of cozying up to Roman Catholic doctrine, and that's incredibly dangerous. And here's a reason why, and here's why the Catechism would seek to distance itself from that misunderstanding. How many on, on Judgment Day will think they are right with Jesus Christ, trusting more in the sign than they did in what the sign signified? Just let that sink in. That's a sad thought. That's why, that's why we speak against Roman Catholic doctrine. It's not just because it's like the Reformed just like bashing Catholics. That's just what, what we do. It's not it. It's that, that, that misteaching, that mispreaching is so destructive for those who would think, I was baptized, I'm saved, but who never actually placed their faith, trusting in the sign and not what it did signify. That's such a danger. The Council of Trent in Session 7 on the Sacraments in Canon 6, the Catholic Church damns those who say the sacraments do not confer grace on those who do not place an obstacle in the way. If you would say the sacrament doesn't convey grace, if you don't receive it in faith, they would disagree. It's, it's not just that. It's that you're not putting an obstacle in the way. Canon 5 says that if anyone says that baptism is free, that is not necessary unto salvation, let him be anathema. The Catholic Church then believes baptism is necessary for salvation. Now, to be fair to what they say, they will make certain allowances at times for a baptism of intention, as if you intended to, you desired to, but were unable, or a baptism by, by blood, by martyrdom, as when, if you were to become saved and were unable to receive that baptism because of a martyr's death, you would still be saved in their thinking. So it's not as if they would say that exclusively, but they believe that baptism, either by intention, by blood, or truly given, is necessary for salvation. Well, how do we respond? We don't want to downplay it. Baptism is a command of Christ. And in that way, it is necessary. It's necessary for us to do because our God has commanded it. But it is not necessary unto salvation as if baptism itself brings about that salvation, as if it is that performance of the sign by which you can be saved. The Roman Catholic Catechism says, This sacrament is also called the washing of regeneration and renewal by the Holy Spirit, for it signifies and actually brings about the birth of water and the Spirit, without which no one can enter the kingdom of God. You see the issue there. Their view is that the effectiveness of the sacrament's operation doesn't lie in the subjective realm of the believer, but in the objective power of the sacraments themselves, and there's the danger. There you can see creeping in, in what are you placing your faith? That font right there, filled with water, is that what you're placing your faith in just because it was on your head? Or are you placing your faith in the fact that that sign meant something more that you received by faith? 
And that's what we would say is the answer. There is so much meaning in baptism. We don't downplay that, but to to push it so far, to put so much in it, is a danger of the gospel itself. It corrupts the gospel, actually. It really makes that a barrier to the gospel rather than a mark and a sign that's supposed to reveal the gospel to us. All reformers rejected this. This is why it's also in our catechism, because it separates the sacrament from the word. It separates the sacrament from the word of God. The sacraments are nothing without the word of God, because what they're sealing and signifying is God's word to us. To distance and separate it then as if you could receive that baptism and the cleansing of sins without faith that understands or is placed in Jesus Christ himself is a denial of the gospel itself. That faith comes through Jesus Christ and him alone. There must, in the Catholic idea, be no obstacle of conscience resisting or put in the way of the part of the recipient. Only that unbelief, only this obstacle could modify the efficacy of that grace conveyed. That is what they teach. And that's why we have to understand it. We are to be clear that we, we reject such teaching and we are to be clear for all those who might misunderstand it. And there's so much, so much misunderstanding. You go out and talk to to others, just those in the world. What is Christianity to them? For most, it's Catholicism. That's what it is. That's how most understand it. Or even if they grew up in a different branch of it, there would likely be a misunderstanding in this way or another. And in this way, it's to, to put their salvation in it. I was baptized. I'm good. I've been washed happened during the time of the Reformation, those who would wait to have baptism, and the Roman Catholic Church does condemn this, but their their teachings produce such a response that there were those who would wait until death, until, until they could get all their sinning in and receive that cleansing baptism and then enter heaven with so much taken away that that's the over that's the outflow of this type of teaching and understanding. But rather we see that baptism means so much more than that actually. Rather than divorcing itself from the word of God, it brings to us an understanding of it. It shows us that we are united to Christ. So we see then that baptism washing is not automatic, but baptism's washing, this is our second point, is not insignificant. If the first question and answer of this Lord's Day was dealing with Rome's issues, this question and answer is dealing with more of a Zwinglian issue, an issue that would take away all meaning from the sacraments, that it's just to be performed, just to be done. It's an action that means nothing else, and that's where the Catechism would speak against that. This is fighting against those who would understate or undervalue what baptism actually means. So the logic flows this way. If baptism's ceremony as performed does not in and of itself wash away sins, then why do it? What does it mean? And this is the answer. God has good reason for these words. To begin with, he wants to teach us that the blood and spirit of Christ take away our sins just as water removes dirt from the body. We talked about this last time. I'm not going to go into it. That symbolism is quite clear that that water cleansing us of sin is to depict what happens in the blood of Christ. But then you see it goes down more importantly. He wants to assure us by this divine pledge and sign 
that we are as truly washed of our sins spiritually as our bodies are washed with water physically. This enters in, then, that promise of God, the seal and pledge. This is where you're getting at, that it is more than just a ceremony performed, and it's more than just illustrating something. This is the very promise of God. This is his seal of that promise. What's that promise, you would say? Where is this promise given? Mark 16, 16 says, Whoever believes and is baptized will be saved. Whoever believes and is baptized will be saved. This is one of those places where you can start seeing why there would be those to misunderstand and and put more in baptism. We've just explained that, but you see how strongly it's stated. Those who, whoever believes and is baptized will be saved. The simplicity of that is beautiful. You would think salvation would be so complex. You'd have to go through so many hoops. It's, it's more difficult to, to buy a house than it is to enter eternity. Here it is. Whoever believes and is baptized will be saved. How plain. How simple. How clear. This verse isn't meaning. It is baptism that's itself that saves, but it, it, as the sign, is so united to the reality that God's word will speak in this way. That what it's being signified in baptism is really where it's getting at. It's getting at those who have this promise and seal of God, those who believe it, will be saved. And there's your assurance, brothers and sisters. Have you been baptized? Do you believe you are saved? Placing your faith in Jesus himself. There's the salvation. There's the simplicity of it. And baptism is that, that, that seal, that certificate of authenticity, pressing the signet ring, as it were, in us, God's people, and even in his promise. Put it this way, you can always take that to the bank. Use that expression. Take it to the bank. It's a sure thing, sure deal. God will never reject those who have been baptized and believe. That's why he gives us that sign, washing us with that water, cleansing us to show us that in Christ we are saved. And if we think, if we think that's anticlimactic, like that's all that it means, that's not the way we treat this in our lives. We don't treat a proposal and a giving of an engagement ring like it meant nothing. We don't treat a graduation and the diploma with its certificate and seal as if it's worthless. We don't even treat signing the deed of a house as if it's meaningless. These are things we celebrate. For some of them, we gather together. We have parties to celebrate these things. We don't think they're insignificant. They matter. Even though in all of them, someone could reject the promise given. Someone could turn back from it. And yet, it's momentous, it's meaningful and impactful, and that's baptism. The third and finally, baptism's washing is not infant-excluding. And this is where we get to that third question and answer, where we're getting at baptism's recipients. Who are owed this sign? If this is what it means, who should have it performed on them? When you are in discussions, either with yourself or with someone who, who does not embrace this teaching, You have to be clear. The first question that needs to be answered, really the only question that needs to be answered, 
is who is owed this sign? Whose who should be given this sign? It might seem like a, a slight statement. What does that matter? Well, what you're doing is you're actually saying the fundamental question and issue here is who is God giving the sign to? Who, who has the sign belonging to them and to whom it shall be given? And with that in your mind, we read this answer of the Catechism. Yes, infants as well as adults are included in God's covenant people. We'll pause there. Is that statement in doubt? No. Throughout all of the Old Testament, no one would have questioned the statement, who are part of the covenant community? It is Israel and their descendants. It is believers, in other words, and their children. That was never an assailed truth. Who are part of the covenant? Infants as well as adults are included in God's covenant people. The sign of circumcision, after all, was given to infants. Barely over a week old. They received that sign. So there's the first line. And then it continues, And they, no less than adults, are promised deliverance from sin through Christ's blood and the Holy Spirit who works faith. And this is true as well. Are, are, you, are, you, are you absent the promises of God or his blessing because of your age? Certainly not. That's not how God's word has ever functioned. That's not how God has ever worked with his people they no less than adults are promised this. Where in God's word do you see the seed of the covenant treated as if they didn't belong? Doesn't happen. There are those treated as covenant breakers. That happens. But you have to be part of something to be a breaker of it. They always were a part of it. And the Holy Spirit is the one who works that faith. Continuing, therefore, by baptism... The sign of the covenant, they too should be incorporated into the Christian church and distinguished from the children of unbelievers. This was done in the Old Testament by circumcision, which was replaced in the New Testament by baptism. Jesus says, let the little children come to me. Now, others are going to argue against that, and they will say what Jesus is talking about is the manner of our faith. That what he's doing there is he's seeking to instruct us on the nature of faith, to have a faith that receives it like this child. That's, the, that's what he's doing. I don't deny that that is a part of it. I don't deny that we are to have a faith that resembles that type of trust and that that is what true faith is as well. But you see, Jesus' response here was far more than that, being indignant that they would keep them away. You see... The disciples, in their day and age, it would make sense. Why? Children were worthless in that day and age at that time. They didn't amount to much. What do I mean? I mean, sad, the sad reality is so many of them did die in infancy, and so the people would not, would not really have them as part of much. The other reality was that they couldn't contribute to the community. And so because they couldn't contribute to the community, they were thought very little of. And in that Jewish misunderstanding, what could they do to contribute to their own salvation? How could they keep the law that they couldn't keep it in that way? They didn't amount to much, but that's not how God views them. That's a complete distortion of how to view the youth of God's people. He says, let them come, and is indignant that they would keep him from him. And then what does he do? Yes, he, he makes a point about faith, but then he blesses this young child. It's not a pat on the head. 
That's not a politician doing some, some moment for the photos and photographers to look so welcoming and inviting, so friendly. That's not it either. To let him go with a blessing is what but a covenant blessing? It, it doesn't... What could it mean other than a covenant blessing? He saw that they were a part of it. He said, let them come to me, for to such belongs the kingdom of God, and it does. He welcomes them. This blessing is then that covenantal blessing. The crucial question in determining who should be baptized is not simply those who believe. That's just a part of it. We recognize the truth of it. Those who believe should be baptized, but there's another part of it, and it's their children. And their children. I'm taking the following arguments from Kevin DeYoung's commentary on the Catechism. He has a lot of helpful arguments, and I want to just go through them. I'm, I'm basically just taking them from his commentary. There are others as well, but these are a good start to it as we would seek to understand why we, we baptize our children, why we understand it that way. We baptize, baptize infants because they are covenant children and should receive the sign of the covenant. The Catechism makes this point, and we do. Circumcision is the basis. Circumcision was the Old Testament equivalent. Now, this is where there will be arguments. There will be those who would say circumcision does not mean what baptism does, that circumcision was merely a physical sign. But that's not what we see. It didn't just mark one as an ethnic Jew. Circumcision was full of spiritual meaning. The circumcision of the flesh was always meant to correspond with the sign itself, meaning there was supposed to be a cutting off of the sin, just as there was a cutting off of the flesh. It signified and sealed something else, something spiritual. It pointed to humility, it pointed to new birth, it pointed to a new way of life. Leviticus 26, 40-42, Deuteronomy 10, 16, Deuteronomy 36, Jeremiah 4.4, Jeremiah 6.10, Jeremiah 9.25 all show this truth. In short, circumcision was a sign of justification, which we talked about last time in Romans 4, in Abraham and that sign given to him and when it was given to him and what it marked. Circumcision was a sign of that. And so in this way, baptism is, is the continuation of what circumcision was. There's that meaning. Children today are baptized based on the same covenant with Abraham. Paul makes clear in Galatians 3 what Peter strongly says in Acts 2, and that's that the covenant made with Abraham, that same covenant that circumcision was meant to, to portray, has not been annulled. It hasn't been erased. It's still in operation. In fact, we see the basic promise of the covenant of Abraham running through the whole of the Bible. There's no diminishment to it. There's only adding in grandeur to the covenant of God and to his promises. Yes, it's true. There's no text that says, baptize your infant children. No, there is not that text. But here's the arguments why it's not needed. First, the burden of proof rests on those who would deny that the sign be given to the children. It always had been given to the children. Does anyone deny that the sign of, of being brought into the covenant and inclusion was circumcision in the Old Testament that was given to children? So the burden of proof for those who would say it no longer should be is on them to prove. God's word doesn't need to, to continue to, to say what's an established truth. 
So the burden of proof rests on those who would deny it. Second, the existence of household baptisms is evidence that God still deals with households as a unit. A lot of arguments over household baptisms, and usually they just devolve into, were there any infants there? You can't say there were infants there, but it's a household. I've, I've seen it, right? This is, this is how it goes back and forth. But the principle, clearly, that God still operates with households, however old the children were, there's the principle we see in the New Testament. It was their households that received the sign. That's how he functions. Three, children are always part of the covenant, always expected to react and obey as the covenant children should. They are called to obey their parents. Ephesians 6, verse 1, Paul tells the children to obey in this way. Paul expects them to comport themselves, even as kids, according to God's law, according to his covenant. Children in the church are not treated as little pagans to be evangelized, but members of the covenant who owe their allegiance to Christ, and that is how we should treat our children making clear always where their faith lies, but they owe something to Christ. They have a relationship with him, and that is how they are to be brought up. Four, Christ welcomed little children to himself and blessed them. That's the point that we just made. Kevin DeYoung is making that same point. Jesus calls them to himself. Jesus blesses them. He gives them covenantal blessings. And five, this is a historical argument. Within two centuries, we have clear evidence that the church was practicing infant baptism. If this had been a change to long-standing tradition, we would have some record of the church arguing over this new practice. DeYoung says it wasn't until the 16th century that Christians began to question this practice. That's a historical argument, weaker than the others, because the other ones are from God's word, but nonetheless should be said. This is why we do it. What does this reveal about God? What's the point? Do you care at all about the point that God cares about you and your children? Do we care at all that our covenant community includes them, the youngest of members? Do we see that God shows so much love, even as that text from Mark says, let the little children come to me? That's what we do in baptism. We don't deny it or thwart it. Why would we? To say other than that puts too much on us. Our adults, you know, so special that they are the ones who are finally able to do something to be saved. I know that's not what the Baptists are arguing. They're not saying that. They're, they're trying to say it's just accompanying a true faith. Don't want to misinterpret them, but do we, do we really think that the promises of God don't include them and can only include those who, who grow up and then profess that faith. It didn't in the Old Testament. Why would he limit that in the New? It would have been actually a, a day of mourning if people who had had their covenant community and their children as parts of that, then Jesus comes and we're, we're praising him and there's an outflow of Pentecost and the Spirit is unleashed and all these things. And then, by the way, your kids don't belong anymore. Is that what we would say? God's love is far greater than that. And in baptism, we see that. We see the promise of God. We see him extend a promise even to our kids. The same promise, the same seal extended to us.
We need to praise God for that. That he cares so much for his people that that's what he would do. Let's go before him and praise him for that truth. Let's bow in prayer. Lord, we thank you for the mercies that you extend to your people. We thank you for the blessing it is to know the covenant and the promises of the covenant and a sign that shows us so clearly that in Christ there's washing away of sins, a sign that shows union with him, and a sign that is more than our act of a profession and rather, rather an endowment of the, the very promises of God, a seal, a certificate, an assurance that whoever believes and is baptized will be saved. We praise you for that great truth. In Jesus' name, amen.